David drove in silence for the first hundred miles. I was comfortable with that. I didn't feel like talking. The landscape unreeled in reverse. I would have to look up the places we'd been through on our way up to Orkney. To safety, as I had thought. Right. We had agreed to get to London and then contact the Rocks board. Let's seek a face-to-face meeting and resolve the situation, David had said. Maybe there are some battles too big to fight. If governments and huge corporations are moving behind this, then what could a handful of us do? You and I have been warned enough. No point in going to the wire, we'd lose. Better to apologise, put our heads down and regroup for a future war. Perhaps he was right. But it didn't seem much of a plan, and it galled me to do what Rajinda Varma had suggested. I wondered if he felt the same, or whether his innate caution was winning out again. The Sky Machine by Martin Lidiment Performed by Jennifer Bardsley and Martin Lidiment Chapter 6 For the Benefit of the Community After the open fields and uninterrupted views down to the sea we'd had from Orkney's roads, the Caithness moors were bleak. Low stratus wrapped them in grey folds, and we used headlights and fog lights at the highest points. The wet air had struggled up from the bogs and streams during the previous day as the sun warmed them. Then it had given up as soon as it could as night fell, and let its moisture go up in a vast sigh of relief. The clouds covered the world. We inched along in a tiny space beneath them. Pale shapes appeared and disappeared, mostly fences, the occasional house, and once even a horse, standing, staring morosely into the fog. Even the big wind farm was hidden, the forest of white towers that I had photographed, its huge turbines slowly revolving like massive spurs pricking the sky and hurrying it along. That was now nothing more than a truncated road leading towards a blank whiteness. I asked David to slow down and lowered my window. I could hear the invisible blades rushing, churning the atmosphere in vain. The stratus remained unbroken and unmoved. By the time we reached the east coast roads, the day had become hotter and the sun had climbed high enough to burn off the majority of the cloud cover. Long stands of pine forest gave way to unbroken views across a series of locks, and we crossed narrow causeway bridges, our car a single dark bead sliding along their spans. It was a Sunday, and too early for much traffic. I think we only saw five or six other cars in those first few hours. Eventually, we were running parallel to a sea lock, where a collection of drilling platforms had been towed and moored. They reminded me of the dying Martian fighting machines from War of the Worlds, 
deathly grey and immobile, far off yet threatening in the distance, their great legs planted in the muddy ooze at the bottom of the firth. We were both tired. It had been an early ferry and neither of us had slept much the previous night, too much on our minds. The sign for a cafe caught our attention and we turned off the main road and down a much narrower one that looped back and brought us even closer to the lock. We weren't very hopeful it would be open, but you could never tell. People in this part of the world could be flexible when it came to tourists. I had known crofters open up shop and invite me in for tea and cake and a conversation that would last half the day. Everything had a different pace up here. We approached a small linear village that hugged the road. The houses looked asleep. There were no people about. The cafe was one of only three shops. A hairdresser and a general store made up the rest of the high street. We parked the Volkswagen in a free space underneath the gnarled tree and walked back to the cafe. Halfway there, I stopped David. We stood, the lock at our backs, the rigs like huge nails holding down the mist. I want us to make a promise to each other, I said. It's this, if for any reason we get split up, or if we decide to go our separate ways, then neither of us will try to get in touch. We tell anyone who asks that we don't know each other, so we don't compromise ourselves. There's an absolute need here for us to stay safe. Can you agree to that? He'll think it a bit strange to come out of the blue, I thought, but he simply said, Yes, I agree. I felt relieved, and I reached out and squeezed his hand. Thank you, I said. Come on then, let's see if we've struck lucky with some breakfast. We were indeed lucky. Lights were on inside the cafe, and the sign on the door said, open. Surprised, but hungry, we went in. There was a small eating area with a low counter, glass-covered buns and cakes and a new-looking espresso machine, a small till. Community notices and posters were pinned to the counter front, and some second-hand exhibition panels were propped against a wall, carrying information about ecology project protect the wildlife along the edges of the lock. The photographs showed groups of children and adults in wet weather walking gear, holding nets, baskets and washing up bowls. They'd been rescuing things. Other pictures were of tree planting expeditions. The community had funded all of the work. There was a standing appeal for donations and a handmade cardboard thermometer with a blue tacked pointer against its scale. It was up to 1,200. I went to the counter. Hello, I said. We walked round the corner and the cafe seating gave way to a shop, or rather a display of what I assumed were locally made gifts. There were knitted toys and small ceramic plates and plaques with blue and green and yellow designs. Birds and boats featured a lot. Blocky oil paintings were hanging to the left of the display racks. They all showed the same distinctive style, which was rather good. The artist had captured the atmosphere of the lock outside and the surrounding low hills and forests with strong, confident sweeps of light and shade. Further into the building, cafe and shop merged into a relaxed seating area with what looked like a small library. I wandered over to it. There were a couple of old, battered armchairs set by an electric fire 
and a few tables with modern wooden chairs. The books were stacked in a long, low set of shelves that ran one length of the wall, with some albums lying on the tables. I picked one up at random and opened it. The book was handmade, by a local historian it seemed. A collection of articles and essays about the area, interspersed with pictures and newspaper cuttings. There was a lot of wartime stuff here. German and Italian prisoners had helped construct tidal barriers and pillboxes had defended the mouth of the sea lock. A barracks and camp had been constructed further up the road. The buildings were long gone and the land reclaimed for grazing. It looked like there had been a few romances, not all ending happily maybe. Human stories peeping out like stone roses amongst the dry narrative. Hello? said a woman's voice from around the cafe area. We went back around the corner. A short middle-aged lady was turning dials on a coffee machine with a slightly puzzled air. Another could be seen through a door leading into a small kitchen area. She was arranging cups and plates and stopped what she was doing to give us a wave. This thing defeats me every time, said the woman, who was just adjusting the espresso machine. You two take a seat and I'll be with you in a moment. She bent down and hunted for something under the counter. David and I sat in a window corner and waited for her. After a moment she emerged, holding a notepad and pen. She came to our table and smiled down at us. Now, what can I get you? You look like you might have been driving for a while. Would you like something to drink first? A tea would be good, please, I said. Coffee for me, please, said David. Have you got Earl Grey? I asked. Oh, we may have, said the woman breezily. She called through the kitchen door. Morag, do you have any fancy tea in? Oh, yes, her friend replied. Got a shipment of them in from the big city the other day. They were obviously sharing a joke and wanted us to join in. I'll sort your coffee out in just a minute, said our waitress. Though I can't guarantee that I'll get Mr Rocket Machine to spit out anything other than a lot of coffee flavoured foam. So I may need to revert to using a good old fashioned kettle. Handmade is fine by me, said David, getting into the spirit of the conversation. A tea and a problematic coffee then, said the woman. Would there be anything you'd like to eat as well? How about some breakfast? Morag, have we some eggs? Plenty of eggs, Shona. Morag sang from the kitchen. So I could do your bacon and eggs? Or poached eggs on toast, maybe? Oh, poached eggs, please, I said. Same for me, please, said David. I reached out and checked the petals on a single flower that had been put on a little glass vase and stood in the centre of the table. It was real, not plastic. The light brightened outside and the interior of the cafe seemed to glow. There was nothing special about it. Pastel printed curtains, simple seats and a couple of friendly staff, but it felt good. Shona brought our drinks to the table. This is a community venture then? I asked her. Oh yeah, she said. The village started it a wee while back and it's grown a bit since then. You saw the sign on the main road? I nodded. We're getting a few more through the door since we put that up. Should have got permission, I think, but no one's complained. Have you been doing this work since the cafe opened? I asked her. She nodded. I was a school teacher and Morag in the kitchen's an artist. 
Her work's on the wall over there. We have time to help out, and there's a few others. You're saying it's quiet at the moment, but it gets a bit more lively in the evenings. We have some music and some reading groups. There was a village hall left over from the wartime, but that fell down, so we're a bit of a centre for the people who've stayed here. It's lovely, I said. It's peaceful, has a nice atmosphere. Sharna smiled again. Well, thank you, she said. Now you enjoy your drinks and I'll go and help Morag. Just shout if you need anything. She went into the kitchen and shut the door behind her. David and I sipped our drinks and looked out the window. We were probably both thinking about the next steps in the process we were about to go through. I was about to broach the subject when the cafe door opened and a tall, thin man came in. He took off his cap and he had short, cropped white hair, although I thought he was probably only in his early forties. He's wearing a Burberry jacket, which he took off and slung on the back of a chair. He went and got a newspaper from a rack and came to sit down at an adjacent table. He started to read, and then he looked up and spoke to us. Are you travelling far? he asked. Back to London, said David. Ah, that's a long way. Breaking your journey anywhere? We thought Pitlockery, I said. Good choice. Lovely at this time of the year, apart from the traffic, of course. The river and the salmon ladder are worth seeing, and there's often something good on at the theatre. I doubt we'll have much time, I said, but thanks for the tip. That's alright, he said. He regarded us more closely. And what do you think of this place, he asked, throwing out an arm to embrace the centre with a gesture. I think it's lovely, I said. David nodded in agreement. It is, isn't it? Just shows what a community can do if it pulls together. Do you live here? David asked. Yes, he replied, a little further on. This is the quiet end of the village, at least at this time of day. Nothing much happening. Hardly any cars. I like the quiet. What do you do? I asked. Oh, I'm semi-retired, he replied. I do the odd job here and there, but on the whole I potter and pursue my interests. He smiled, but I thought his eyes seemed very cold. He pulled his chair across to our table. Can I tell you something about this place? He said, seeing that you like it. David and I said nothing. He started to talk anyway. This is one of the darkest parts of Britain. Lots of sky watchers travel up here. They bring their telescopes in their cars, set them up by the lock. Completely black skies, you see. No light pollution. Isn't that an interesting concept? That light pollutes. Light has been our friend for so long driving away the dangers of the night. Now it's like poison. Anyway, you'd hardly know they were there. Just some red LEDs shining on their headbands, and then silence, as they observe, out on the shoreline there. One of them could go missing and no one would know until dawn. If then, 
I expect they tell people where they're going though. I have to say, I've never really seen the point of amateur astronomy anyway. Why not leave it to the big guys with the big budgets and their telescopes on mountaintops in Chile or wherever? They're the ones who are going to make the discoveries, surely. Not necessarily, said David. Many amateurs find things large programs miss because they have time to look around and examine less fashionable areas. The big money is in planetary detection these days. Amateur astronomers can't compete in that. But then they don't have the right resources anyway. Yes, said the man. They definitely don't have space telescopes, do they? So do you think the professionals will find something out there on those planets? Intelligent life? He was still smiling, turning a table mat in his hands, watching David. Possibly, David said. Maybe with the next, but one generation of telescopes we'll be able to do analysis of extraterrestrial atmospheres and see if there are any telltale signatures that might indicate organic life or even industry. Fascinating, said the man. Light as a form of pollution, and pollution as a sign of intelligence hidden in light. He sat back, clasped his hands loosely in front of him. I don't think they're going to find much, he said. I think if the aliens were out there, we would have known by now. Well, where are they? That's Fermi's question, said David. If the universe is so old and civilizations may have arisen on other worlds centuries or millennia or millions of years ago, why do we have no evidence of them or even their autonomous probes? One inquisitive race could have filled the galaxy with exploration devices by now. The man cocked his head and looked at him. Very astute, he said. Though, of course, there's a fundamental assumption that you're making, which is that they would be untidy. Personally, I would like my alien species to be a bit more competent than they are generally portrayed in films. He suddenly leaned forward eagerly. What would they do if they came? He asked. What do you imagine? That they would lift us up to a technocratic glory? Or that they would drink the seas and suck our marrow? It's fascinating, isn't it? That oscillation between the naive wish and a primal fear. What would you both wish for? I would hope that they would leave us alone until we're ready, David said. We have too many examples of civilizations being destroyed by contact with more complex and advanced ones. I'd hope that if they're intelligent, conscious beings, they might have a sense of responsibility, I said. I was feeling sick. He had gone very quiet in the cafe and I couldn't hear any noise from the kitchen. Consciousness? The stranger laughed. Just because some proteins bunched together then collided to make a primitive cell. Because some cells stuck together to form a tiny knot at the top of a little worm's body. Pure chance. And yet, you believe that over millions of years there is a purpose to growing and evolving. Wasn't that Chardin's rather quixotic thesis? 
that there's some sort of built-in deterministic path that matter has to follow towards awareness. I think it was that. Totally mad, of course. Ever upwards is humanity's motto. But what if there's no direction? What if personal identity is just noise in the machine? Intelligence gives an edge, yes. Well, undeniably. Big brains learn, adapt, anticipate, and plan. But there's no advantage, no purpose in the consciousness. An ability to manipulate the environment is enough to keep DNA hopping from body to body, preserving itself. It's still possible to climb to the top of the savage ladder without being able to ascribe success to an ego sitting behind the eyes and thinking it's steering. Know thyself. Great motto, but what's the value in it? Perhaps what happened was that our brains grew too complex and accidentally netted consciousness out of the sea of being that is the universe. Humanity went fishing without knowing it and didn't realise what it had caught. But it's a slippery fish, isn't it? Like a colour or a note when a string is plucked. It has its form, but consciousness gives it meaning. What is it that sees and hears? Consciousness can only exist as a transformation of something that is bounded by and contained within time. Tell me, do you think that some god breathed a soul into you? Because otherwise, how can consciousness be created from nothing? Or are you atheists? If so, then, as rational people, you have to admit that the possibility of all thoughts must have been contained in the potentiality from which the universe grew. When the Big Bang happened and the singularity inflated, your thoughts were already in it. Or how could they come from a non-existent outside, pushing their way in like a late guest at a party? Or maybe you're claiming godlike powers? Are you? Do you think, for example, that it's possible for humans to control the weather? He paused. Ready to go? He asked. I looked sharply towards the kitchen door. Oh, I'm not sure where they went, he said softly. Be back later, maybe. Sorry about the breakfast, but we're waiting. Susan. David said. I'll remember what we promised. Something cold broke inside me like a tube of ice and cascaded a storm of bitter snow through my body. Fear has a taste like metal. I stood up with the fear in my mouth. Through the window, I could see a white SUV parked across the back of our Volkswagen, blocking it. Another SUV stood on the roadside with its engine running. Two men were standing by the cafe door and another two by the cars. I think... I think we have no choice, I said. David looked out the window and just shrugged. Are we going together? He asked the man. 
The stranger shook his head. Separate cards, please. I hope we don't need to discuss anything about running or any other sudden actions that might be wrongly interpreted. David tried to reach my hands then, but the stranger slammed his own hand down on the table between us. No, he said. Off you go now, Dr. Forrester. David stood up and walked out of the door, letting the two men waiting outside take his arms. They crossed the road and he got into the back of the SUV, whose engine was idling, and the men got in on either side of him. The doors shut, and the car drove off immediately. I closed my eyes for a while, and then opened them again. The cafe was still bright and sunny, and my tea was still warm in the cup in front of me. The small man opposite me grinned like a cat as we looked at each other. Well, Susan, he said, let's you and I continue this pleasant chat elsewhere. Sky Machine is written and produced by Martin Liddermont. Performed by Jennifer Bardsley and Martin Liddermont. Music by Purple Planet Music, Daniel Birch and the Pangolins. <laughs>